As one of many issues in modern applied ethics, human enhancement is the object of many a heated exchange. Professor Julian Savalescu, director of the Oxford Uhiro Centre for Practical Ethics, talks about the current and future issues in applied ethics, particularly of the new biosciences. Your work crosses over many disciplines, so what are you? You're a philosopher, a clinician, a medical scientist? Originally I was a, a medical doctor and I then entered the sphere of um, philosophy and I, I work in an area which can be called practical ethics, which, which looks at the ethical issues that arise in ordinary life and, and also as a result of um, scientific advance and medical practice. So I aim to look at these issues by understanding the, the relevant science and medicine and working with clinicians and scientists from a range of disciplines and helping to first of all identify ethical issues and then trying to think through what kinds of responses there could be or what we should do. Practical ethics is essentially about how we should act or what we should do in, in the real world. So practical ethics has application for an ordinary person, not just an academic? Uh, absolutely. I mean, there, there are a range of issues that people face every day in their life, whether to take public transport or drive their car, what sort of food to buy, what to say to their children when their children ask about drugs, uh, how to think about human relationships, divorce, marriage, how to think about abortion, uh, reproduction forming a family, how much time to spend at work or how much time to spend with your family, all of these are ethical issues that require values. There's no scientific answer to these questions, although often scientific information is very relevant to, to making a better decision, but ultimately these are questions about people's values and that's something that philosophy is uh, primarily focused on. It seems a very unconventional approach to scholarship, so how are you meant to engage with the public? Well, one of the ways of engaging with the public is to address issues that come up in public discourse. So, for example, recently we, we had some input into discussion about creating um, human, non-human um, life forms, which have a mixture of human and, uh, and animal genetic material. And this is being debated by Parliament, so we've written a paper analysing the various objections and issues that come up in, in this kind of uh, topic and have provided advice. So for example another area of, of, of public interest that I've been working on a lot is, is drugs in sport. Every year there are a number of disqualifications from major sporting events for people taking um, doping agents and there's a question now on how we should regulate this, whether we should ramp up the war on doping or whether we should take a more constrained and liberal approach perhaps permitting some drugs while banning others. Which approach would you argue for? Well, in the drugs and sport uh, issue, I've uh, written quite a lot on this. I think the war on drugs is failing and is bound to fail for a number of reasons. The sophistication of the technology, huge incentives that are, are there for athletes to cheat, and that the arguments for banning drugs in sport are in some ways wrong-headed. One of the basic principles is that simply using a drug to enhance performance makes it wrong, I think is a mistake. All through human history, humans have attempted to take things which will improve their performance ever since, for example, cycling. Professional cycling began. Doping has been a part of cycling. Caffeine was a drug which was banned in the Olympics. It's, it, it improves performance, reduces the time to exhaustion by 10 or 20 percent. 
and that's now permitted without any detriment to um, professional sport. So I think the argument that simply because something enhances performance is against the spirit of sport is a mistake. The two reasons for banning something in sport is, is one is that it's substantially risky, that is the risks are greater than the risks inherent in professional sport, and most of the things that are currently being used by athletes are not that risky. For example, the use of EPO or um, human erythropoietin to increase the level of red cells in blood, the use of growth hormone to increase um, muscular strength, the use of anabolic steroids. These all carry some risks, but the risks are, in my view, uh, within a reasonable range. The second reason for banning some doping uh, agent is that it's against the spirit of a particular sport. So I've recently been engaged in a debate around the use of swimming skins in swimming. Now these are said to improve performance. In my view they're not against the spirit of swimming. People have shaved their bodies. This doesn't fundamentally alter the nature of swimming in the way that say wearing flippers or perhaps webbing your hands and feet, which is biologically, theoretically possible, would change the nature of swimming. So on this view, we need to look at each sport and what the nature of the activity is and how it is an expression of human physical excellence and attempt to decide whether a particular drug is or isn't consistent with that. But when it comes to something like blood doping in, in cycling, it's very easy to set a safe limit. You could say athletes can dope up to a uh, red blood cell level of 50% of the the blood and if they're above that level we exclude them that's there's a very simple test that's 100% effective and that's safe and this wouldn't compromise the spirit of cycling and it would uh, remove the need to exclude people for moving their red blood cell level from 48 to 49% remove all the uh, expensive testing and allow us to focus on things like genetic modifications that might fundamentally change sport it sounds like you're often butting up against conventional beliefs widely held beliefs how do you change them? One of my my fundamental tenets is is many of our um, many of our objections are misplaced, and we're overconfident that something is wrong when the arguments really aren't that clear. So, you know, one of the examples is cloning. I think the objections to human cloning are are relatively weak when you look at them carefully. After all, there are one in three hundred people are clones; they're identical twins. These people are much like the rest of us and clearly have full moral status. There doesn't seem to be anything adverse about their existence and no one is doing research into preventing twinning. But then there are other cases where people are not aware of risks or real ethical issues and they're overconfident that things are safe or, or right. And I see my job as refocusing people's attention from the issues that are not so problematic to the ones that really are problematic. So the areas that I think are hugely problematic are the threats that um, technology and especially biological advances represent to the existence of humanity. So the development of bioweapons, dual-use technologies, synthetic biology, these represent ways in which we could potentially, if not you know, eradicate humanity, put a serious dent in it. So, for example, synthetic biology is um, a project that's going on in the US to create life forms from, from scratch, from, from the ground up. Life forms that have never existed before on, in the world, not even through all of the world's history. And this offers huge potentials for you know, potentially metabolising or getting rid of pollution, creating new energy sources. But these raise profound issues about safety, about how you know, we should interfere in nature. 
And these issues are not reaching the front page. You know, what's on the front page is doping in sport or cloning. And I think that uh, we need to excite people's imagination and their own ethical apparatus to address the really big issues. The other major ethical issues are there. We've touched on several. In my view, the, the really big ethical issues are going to come not with respect to whether we should be testing embryos for predisposition for diseases or testing people to see whether they're likely to get diseases. All this will happen. The big issues are not in predicting disease or preventing disease. The big issues are coming up in the knowledge that biology and science is revealing about us as human beings, as, as human animals, and why we behave as we do, why we're prone to conflict, why conflict persists, why we can't resolve conflict, and also the possibilities for changing the human condition. Already people are starting to use the results of scientific research to change the human condition, improve human performance. Doping in sport is just the tip of, of the iceberg that, that's obvious, but in the area of intellectual cognitive performance, we're starting to develop effective cognitive enhancers. The US military is putting a large amount of money uh, into the development of cognitive enhancers. In fact, one spokesperson said um, even a small improvement in general cognitive performance uh, would have as profound economic effects as the introduction of the internet. Now, drugs like modafinil was originally developed for people with narcolepsy, a disorder which causes them to fall asleep irresistibly. It was then found to be useful in shift workers, and it's now, in 2005, I think, was one version of it was worth $1 billion in the US, and that was virtually all off-label. It's used by people to increase wakefulness, improve working memory, concentration, and so on. It's projected that by 2017 it's probably going to be worth somewhere between 10 and 17 billion dollars. And this is just an example of how we will be able to influence people's ability to perform and it's going to raise questions about whether students should be able to use this. Students are already taking it in, in many American colleges. They're also taking other drugs such as Ritalin which are said to improve performance. And of course once we develop drugs that treat memory decline in diseases like Alzheimer's disease, these will also be useful for people who suffer from the normal effects of, of memory loss after the age of 40. So these, I think, are going to be the big issues. You know, how far do we allow humans to change themselves? In what way should they change themselves? Should we be tampering with our nature? With regard to genetic enhancements, I imagine that it'll be much easier to convince a sceptical public that it's more beneficial to genetically enhance someone so that they can cure Alzheimer's than it is to purely enhance them so they're more intelligent. Yeah, many people have a resistance to interfering outside of the treatment of diseases. However, I think it's important to first of all recognise the huge current potential. A few months ago, scientists in the U US created a, um, a, a fluorescing human embryo by introducing a gene from a jellyfish into an embryo. Now, that shows that you can successfully transfer genes from and other species into humans. Scientists many years ago already produced a live-born, apparently perfectly healthy, fluorescing rabbit by using the same technology. So we already have the power to fundamentally modify human nature by transferring genes from other species. So there's no reason in principle why humans couldn't be able to photosynthesize, couldn't be able to navigate in the dark using sonar, have much more acute vision or hearing or smell. 
by genetic modification. And this, of course, raises deep questions about what the limits of, of human modification are. In my view, those questions are answered, or at least the first port of call is to ask, do these make the lives of the beings affected better or worse? Do these, do these modified humans have better lives, lives with more human well-being? Are they happier? Are they better able to achieve their own goals? Uh, or do they have side effects that render their lives overall worse? This, I think, is one of the biggest projects, because while we have huge understanding about what it is to be healthier, we don't have such a sophisticated knowledge of what it is to lead a better life. And that, I think, is the, the primary, well, one of the primary questions for, for this century. How to lead a happy life has been a topic of philosophy for centuries. Do you really believe that modifying our genes will achieve that? Well, there's going to be a lot of cases where modifying our genes will have effects that are controversial. We won't, we won't know whether I rule it. So is it better to have genes which say predispose to manic depression but also predispose to great artistic creativity? I don't know the answer to that question. So should we be interfering with our children or ourselves to change that balance? I don't know the answer to that question. But there are other cases where it's clearer. So for, to take one example from psychology, in the 1960s, a uh, famous psychologist called Walter Michel did a, a famous set of experiments. We put a marshmallow in front, in, in front of um, normal four-year-old children and he said, I'm going to go out of the room and I want you not to eat the marshmallow. When I come back, if you haven't eaten the marshmallow, I'll give you two marshmallows. So he went out of the room and predictably some children just ate the marshmallow straight away and some devised strategies to control their impulses. It's not very surprising how all of us would predict that. But he followed these children up 10 years later and he found those who withstood the temptation of the marshmallow were able to delay gratification, control their impulses, had more friends, more motivation to succeed, much higher academic success. And this property correlated more highly with their SAT scores than, than did their IQ score. And there's very good evidence to believe that the ability to control impulses, delay gratification, is something that correlates with a whole range of good attributes and socioeconomic success. If you have poor impulse control, it's very likely you'll end up in jail. So at least at the end of the spectrum, if we could improve poor impulse control, this would be something that would make people's lives go better. And certainly in the case of my children who, who have relatively good impulse control, or normal impulse control, if they had poor impulse control, that would be something that I'd want to be modifying, even if that involved fundamental biological interventions like genetic manipulations. What are the major objections? Well, the major objections to these sorts of interventions are we're playing God. And that claim can have various meanings. One is that we're simply interfering in nature and it's only God's province to, to interfere in nature. That, that version of the argument, I think, is, is easily rebutted. We've been interfering in nature all through human history when we treated disease, relieved pain during labour, prevented epidemics. And of course, some religious people, you know, in a hundred or so years ago, objected to vaccination and pain relief in labour because they believed that this was God's will. But I think changing human nature is, is something that is fundamental to humans. They are always trying to improve themselves through psychological self-help or educational institutions or social institutions. A better version of the argument is that often we intervene with inadequate knowledge and we have an overconfidence and a, and a hubris and excessive pride, as the Greeks said, in what we can do. 
and things go wrong when we intervene in such fundamental things with inadequate knowledge. And I think that version of the playing God objection is a good one. We should be reluctant to intervene until we properly understand ourselves, the biology, the science, and so on. But I think sometime during the century we will gain that kind of knowledge. And at that point, we will face the hard decision of whether we choose to intervene or continue to leave things as nature allots them. And it's important to recognise that nature has no hand to fairness or happiness. Evolution is not concerned with fairness or happiness. Evolution has only, if you want to give it a direction, been concerned with enabling genes to pass on from one generation to the, to the next. Only concerned with the ability of humans to reproduce. Only concerned with humans living long enough in order for them to reproduce. Evolution is completely unconcerned whether humans become impotent at the age of 60, whether they become depressed, unhappy and so on. Only insofar as these things affect their ability to reproduce. So one of the important points to realise, I think, is that once our knowledge and our technology gives us the possibility of intervening in nature, if we leave things to nature and the natural lottery, we then become responsible for the outcomes in a way in which we weren't when we couldn't do anything about it. So it gives us great power and responsibility. And we have to make a choice. Now, it may be that we decide to leave these things to nature and to, to let natural inequality persist, natural biological inequality persist. Um, but that will be our choice and we will be responsible for that. It's not as if we can absolve ourselves any longer of responsibility. So this is a responsibility that many people wish they didn't have. Sadly, though, we, we have that responsibility. And if we choose not to, say, improve the impulse control of our children, we're responsible for, for their lives and, and the, the deficiencies that that property causes in their lives in a way in which we haven't been through human history when we just had no possibility of fundamentally you know, improving that situation. We legislate for social and political equality. Could you see it going the direction of legislating for biological equality? Well, I think that we will start to, to embrace biological interventions in just the same way as we embrace social and political interventions. In my view, there are four ways of, of improving human well-being or uh, equality. All through human history, humans have altered nature. In the last few thousand years, they've, they've introduced social institutions and changed social arrangements. In the last few decades, they've attempted to intervene in psychology, and now we're reaching the point where we could intervene in biology. And which of those four methods of intervention we choose, I think, just depends on what the reasons are. In some cases, we'll have reasons to prefer changing our social arrangements, changing our laws, changing our institutions and policies and educational institutions. But in other cases, we may have more reason to, to intervene, intervene at the direct biological level. To give you one example, research from the US shows that you need an IQ of 90 in the US to fill in a tax return. Now, the normal IQ ranges from 70 to 130, roughly, and most people fall within that. So people between 70 and 90 have a normal IQ. They don't have a disability. They don't have a disease. They're not candidates for medical treatment. But if you could improve the IQ of people in that range, you would increase their ability to participate in the workforce enormously. So it may be that we could change social institutions, uh, change the nature of society to give everyone a fair chance of getting a job. I think that's just going to be extremely difficult as technology advances. Or we could 
at some point in the future change people's biology to give them all the opportunity to, to take part in society at a more level playing field. At another level, one controversial study suggested that if you simply shifted the IQ curve three points to the right, so changed the mean from 100 to 103, and moved everyone to the right, you'd reduce welfare recipiency by 20%, nails and jar by 20%, unemployment by 20%, uh, and a number of other very important social indicators. Now, if I had some social intervention that said, you know, we could reduce welfare recipiency by 20%, everyone would be jumping up and down to have it implemented. It may be that biological, simple biological interventions at some point uh, this century achieve those sorts of things uh, in a much easier, cheaper and effective way. So if someone had an, an irrational objection to improving their IQ, say, if they were below the, the average or some improvement of their unborn child? What would be the arguments on interfering despite the objection? Well, one of the basic tenets of, of living in a liberal society is that we should respect people's liberty, respect their, their choices, even if those choices are against their own interests, provided that they're competent adults. So my own view is increasingly we're going to have to offer people opportunities and advice and allow them to make their own decisions. Most people will tend to choose things that will promote their interests, but of course some people will choose not to, just as they choose to smoke and drink to excess, and we have to respect those choices in a liberal society. When it comes to children, where we're clear that something is in a child's interests, uh, as a society, if parents are not acting in the child's interests, in many cases the state steps in and, and ensures the child's welfare is protected. So parents are able to, Jehovah's Witnesses are able to refuse life-saving blood transfusions for themselves, but not for their children. It may be that we reach a stage of knowledge that we see that some interventions are fundamentally in, in children's interests, and we won't give parents the freedom to refuse those sorts of interventions. We're some way off from that, but it's my belief that there will be parallel examples to putting fluoride in the water, where we think that the benefits to people are so great and this is so small that we, we believe that uh, this is something that should be done for everyone's benefit regardless of what, what people want. We've talked about physical enhancements. Will you also be able to understand the thought processes behind people's opinions? Neuroscience is also undergoing an explosion at this point in terms of its, its imaging technology, the way in which we can view the brain. For the first time we've been able to not just take pictures of the structure of the brain, but to get an idea of which parts of the brain are working during um, various activities, thoughts, and other mental events. This is called functional magnetic resonance imaging. Uh, so one of the very interesting pieces of research that's come out of the US in the last few years was some of these imaging experiments that looked at what was happening in people's brains when they were making moral decisions. Decisions about these so-called trolley problems, where you have a trolley or a train, it's going to kill five people. You could divert the trolley, but it will kill another person on, a, on another track. When you ask people what they think they should do in that case, most people say you should divert the trolley so that you save the five, but the one dies. But when you ask them instead whether they should deliberately kill one person to save the five, so for example, push the one person in front of the trolley to stop it, here people diverge into two groups. One group, so-called consequentialists, think that it's exactly the same dilemma. You should, should kill the one to save the five. 
And the areas of the brain that are active when they make that choice are the so-called more rational areas of the brain, the areas of the brain associated with higher order cognition. Another group thinks that you shouldn't deliberately kill. These are the so-called deontological views, that, typically religious views, that say you should never kill an innocent person. When they look at the, the functioning of the brain of these people, the, the more emotional primitive areas of the brain are active. Now, people have interpreted this in various ways, and our group here in Oxford has extended this um, research in, in very interesting ways that have shown that the conclusions of, of these researchers are probably not correct. But this is the kind of information that we're starting to get. We, we may be able, at some point, to, tell, to say what people are believing when we look at the scans. We may be able to use this technology to tell whether people are lying. There are other technologies that can influence people's choices and actions in ways that they're not aware of. So, for example, magnetically stimulating parts of the brain can influence the way in which people choose. So we're starting to get to very, very fundamental aspects of, of, of human existence, choice and behaviour in terms of understanding it, but also in terms of manipulating it. Isn't that potentially dangerous? It's hugely dangerous. And as I said, once we have that power, we have to make a choice of whether we use it or not. One of the other characteristic phenomena of technology in this, if you like, post-industrial explosion is that it offers huge potential benefits, but also huge potential risks. So we now have the opportunity to make unprecedented interventions to improve people's lives, but also to control them and to, to harm them in, in much more profound ways than has ever been possible through human history. So with this power comes responsibility to make a choice, but also great responsibility, because the benefits and harms are, are bigger than ever before. One of the important things in this area is that we need to think in a more structured way. Practical ethics, if you like, is not an antidote, but as, is an alternative to, to traditional religious ways of thinking about ethical issues. Up until the middle of last century, the dominant forms of ethics and morals were derived you know, from various religious traditions, in the West, particularly from the Judeo-Christian tradition. Those codes represent much that's profound and wise about human nature, but are also increasingly being surpassed by knowledge that arises from science, and there's a need to reflect in a, in a secular way about the challenges that are facing us. Many people don't subscribe to those codes or find them inadequate to deal with the, the issues, say for example, around contraception, artificial reproduction, genetic testing. And what I think we do need, and what practical ethics tries to do, is to offer people ways of thinking about ethical issues that don't presuppose some religious code. So helping people to make value judgments, to act rightly, to be better people, to make the right choices, but in a non-religious way. And the whole growth of secular ethics is really a very immature field, but one that is becoming I think increasingly important and in increasingly attractive to people who are trying to make their own decisions. Up until, again, sometime last century, many people received instruction from authorities and uh, respect figures on what they should do. But one of the burdens that people today face is they have to make their own decisions about whether they embrace the Green Revolution, whether they become divorced, whether they have children or not, whether they have children by artificial means or not. 
and many of them struggle with the, with the apparatus that they've inherited from their parents. And what practical ethics tries to do is to help them to think through what the reasons might be and what the arguments might be for making those choices. Will neuroscience potentially be able to explain why some people have religious faith? Well, again, um, genetics is revealing that there's some significant genetic contribution to religiosity. We're starting to understand what goes on in the brains of people who hold religious beliefs. So, for example, another study that uh, my colleagues in the group have done is looking at the experience of pain in both religious and non-religious people. And when you show, uh, when people experience a painful stimuli, when you show them a religious image, when you show it to a group of, of believers, they actually experience less pain than the non-religious group. And when you look at the, the ways in which their brains are working, areas to do with control and a sense of control light up in the religious group, which tends to suggest that these people are giving meaning to the pain, they have a sense that there's an element of control over it in a way that uh, the non-religious group don't have. So we're starting to understand what's going on when people hold religious beliefs or have experiences that are affected by their religious beliefs. Being able to put some measure of control over the pain seems quite a positive thing. It's certainly true that being able to control our pain is a positive thing. Um, there may well be other ways in which we can, we can create a sense of self-control and a meaning to pain that don't involve adopting religious beliefs. And, and it's not clear that people can voluntarily adopt religious beliefs anyway. So these are early days, but this kind of research is, is shedding important light on, on what happens when people hold religious beliefs or experience um, religious phenomena. I mean, another area that uh, neuroscience and cognitive science is, is throwing up challenges is in the area of free will and, and, and even addiction. I mean, there, there was a very interesting set of experiments that showed that when you measure the electrical activity in people's brains, there's electrical activity in the motor area of the brain before these people make a conscious decision to choose to act one way or another which some people have suggested means that the whole idea of conscious choice, free will, is an epiphenomenon, that actually what's driving our behaviour occurs at a level below conscious thought, and that conscious thought is a rationalisation of what has already been determined. Now, my view is, is that it's not clear, I think it's probably incorrect, but that's the level of challenge that's, that, that science is throwing up to us. And we believe that we're free and we're responsible for our actions. Uh, it may be that we're substantially less free and less responsible than we believe ourselves to be. So how do we revise our legal institutions? How do we revise our systems of moral approbation and disapprobation in light of this? How should we set up our social institutions? Should we change our children to increase their ability to act freely or to... So how should we understand the science? It's going to be a very exciting time, I think, to be around in the next 30 years. If that starts to occur during this transitional period, would you not have some people who are genetically enhanced have the advantage over the older generation, for instance? One of the great concerns about this revolution, especially the, the revolution about changing our nature, particularly changing our genetic nature, is that we'll result in a two, we'll have a two-tiered society of um, the sort of genetic haves and the genetic have-nots, and those who 
have the money, will buy the more sophisticated interventions and enhancements for, for themselves and their children, and those that don't have money won't. So we'll see a... Lee Silver had said, has said that... Uh, predicted that society will, will basically diversify into two different species. That is entirely up to us. There is, there is nothing that determines you know, how technology is, is allotted. We could choose just to make these sorts of interventions available to those who are the worst off in society. That's up to us. So one of the great challenges, I think, is to decide how we distribute these sorts of technological advances. In my view, we need to take seriously the, the social costs and, and also the ethical costs of, of creating increased inequality. And for that reason, we need to have a vigorous program of, of understanding the effects on people's advantages and their opportunities and their talents and how well their lives go and take seriously the, the possibility of providing these, these things to people just in the way we provide a basic level of healthcare to people. My own view is that education, healthcare and human enhancements are all about improve, improving people's lives, just in different ways. So we need to, to use the same sorts of principles that we apply to education and healthcare to apply to these other areas of life. Because it will be that these sorts of interventions will at one day affect our lives in as profound a way as treating diseases. You know, 20 million men in the US take Viagra for the treatment of simply age-related impotence. That makes a difference to their lives. Whether people should take it or not is up to them. But it's something that it's important that society takes seriously people's goals, how well their lives go. Because at the end of the day, what matters to us is not how healthy we are, but how well our lives go. And increasingly, technology will provide profound ways of affecting how well our lives go. Many people are unaware of just the profound potential of science. We could today create a rat or a mouse with a small human brain by introducing human embryonic stem cells at a very early stage and, and create a, a, you know, a, a mouse with a small human brain. Now, this could be of use in, in scientific research for diseases like Alzheimer's disease or Huntington's disease. That's possible in, in scientific terms today. How should we think about creating those sorts of life forms? We could today create a, a live-born human chimp chimera if you put enough money into it. So what was science fiction in the 1960s with Planet of the Apes is, is reality today. We could study language development, uh, we could do many things. Should we be doing those sorts of things? How should we think about the nature of that kind of being? And you know, many people are just completely unprepared to even begin to think about these, these sort of profound issues that it may be that scientists in some parts of the world just do anyway, uh, or it may be that there are very good scientific reasons for doing these sorts of experiments. But we really need to start to develop a framework for thinking about how to evaluate the ethics of those kinds of radical advances in science. So before you can expect anyone to tackle the, these issues, you need to develop the mechanism for which they can assess the issues. What our version of practical ethics is about is, is to look at the kind of cutting edge of science and to understand what's going on but what is likely to go on or what could go on in the next 5, 10, 15 years and to start to look at those issues now. Because what happened in the, the test tube uh, revolution, the test tube baby revolution, was for a long time Bob Edwards, who with Steptoe produced the first IVF child, Louise Brown, for many years he said, was saying, well, we should discuss the ethics of this, we should, and no one wanted to discuss the ethics of it. And then they just did it. And then everyone wanted to discuss the ethics of it, and he said, it's too late now. And what we don't want 
is a repetition of, of that kind of process when it comes to the, this sort of advance in science. We've probably been lucky with IVF, but we might not be so lucky with this sort of science. So we need to start being able to predict what's happening and starting to think about and develop the conceptual and, and normative, the, 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 the value uh, apparatus, the value framework to think about these sorts of things now. Is there the support and the encouragement to start engaging in these debates? Well, many scientists don't want to discuss their research because they want to get on with the science, but many scientists also think that there needs to be a, a rational approach to this sort of research, because otherwise what, what the risk that we run is we simply put a, a lid on the whole thing and we throw the baby out with the bathwater, and that I think has happened in, in many countries with, with uh, embryonic stem cell research. So we need to start to engage in, and exercise our ethical mus muscles on, on various issues like this so that people are prepared and we have, we have a way of engaging the public through media such as this, through newspapers and television, through public debate on thinking about ethical issues in a, in a calm and balanced way. Because at the end of the day we do live in a democracy and, and, and people have to decide for themselves what they think is right and what I hope will happen and what the goal of our program is is to make sure that that discussion is as informed and as rational as possible. But at the end of the day, we have to, we have to go with the vote of the people.